Hello and welcome to Questions You're Not Asking. My name is Tom French. And I'm Chris Morphew. And Chris and I are writing a book with responses to a bunch of absurd questions about God and the Bible that you're probably not asking and probably don't need an answer to. As we prepare to write the book, we're letting you in on our discussions. This week, we're thinking about the question of would Jesus fight in a world war? But before we get to that, Chris, how are you going? I'm doing okay. It occurs to me that maybe when we publish this book, the back of it shouldn't tell the reader that they don't need to read what's inside. I feel like we're missing a trick marketing-wise, if that's our angle. But that is that is a side issue. We still got time to workshop that. I'm doing all right. I am officially two-shot Pfizer vaccinated. Oh, congratulations. Um, and they told me that the second dose would have all of the hectic side effects, and they were correct. So... I woke up this morning with aches and pains. I'd been tossing and turning all night, and then I had morning sickness. So either I'm surprised pregnant or the Pfizer is is doing what they all told me it would. Oh, so. fantastic. Well, I'm pleased you're vaccinated. Yeah, I hope that's what it is. I haven't posted about it on social media, though, so I don't know if it's kicked in yet. But maybe <laughs> talking about it on a podcast is just as good. Well, I think the band-aid already fell off, so I can't take the photo. The ship sailed, oh. so I can still get an obnoxious frame to go around my Facebook display picture. But You're welcome. Yeah, <laughs> you are. How are you doing, Tom? Oh, I'm getting my vaccination, my AZ vaccination, because I'm not as important a person as you. I'm getting that this Friday, so I'm looking forward to the Jab 1 side effects, which I hear are pretty good. They are supposed to be the best ones. <laughs> do you get them with Pfizer for jab one or only for jab two? No. Well, so I've heard that AstraZeneca, the first jab is the worst and Pfizer, the second one's the worst. So if you go Pfizer first, AstraZeneca second, then you can just avoid all side effects. Yeah, yeah. I, that's, I, you don't hear enough people talking about getting one of each. <laughs> it just feels very logical to me. Uh, what are we talking about? Oh, this week. This, this, this week we are talking about fighting in a world war. Uh, Didn't which, we talk uh, about fighting last week, Tom? Yeah, see, that's what's interesting. We recorded this episode, I don't know, October last year or something, and uh, we hadn't thought through the fact that our premiere episode was going to be biblical characters fighting each other. But I think it works because we deliberately left Jesus out because we knew how powerful he is as a fighter. And so we dedicate a whole episode to Jesus the fighter this week. I don't know, Tom. It just sounds like a fancy way of saying we're running out of ideas, so we had to stretch it out to two. Yeah, well, we've also got a, another two-parter coming up this, this season because... It's the way of the future, season two, the two-parter season. Yeah, like on, on your videos, we got two parts of Infinity Day, which was great, and two parts of Name That Pokemon Character, not so good. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it felt like a better idea to do a second video of me seeing if I could name the Pokemon on various stickers. But then in hindsight, I mean, I have a one of my rules for my YouTube channel is once it's recorded, that's it. It's going up. I'm doing a video every day. So yeah. Look, they're not all going to be winners. Yeah, that's okay. You've done, what, 50, 51 videos now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, two duds out of 52, 51. That's great. Did a great job. Arguably, there are several more duds, but we don't need to get into them. The, no. I think that's part of the journey. You go and you watch the playlist, you watch them all, and you go, oh, look, I found another dud. So, I, I don't know, is there anything else we need to cover before we get into this episode? Is this the bit where I'm asking you, what did you get up to this week, Tom, or have we... Yeah, I didn't get up to anything interesting this week, because I'm in lockdown. <laughs> We've both been in lockdown. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, the other thing we should cover, though, I think is just worth mentioning. We talk about... Mark Driscoll in this episode. That's right. When was this recorded? <laughs> October last year, I'm pretty sure. Man, take that, Christianity Today. Yeah. Way yeah. ahead of the... They probably just copied us. They, were... they probably hacked your, your laptop and, and stole the files for this episode. And they were like, wow, we they talk about Mark Driscoll, we better get ahead of them and do a whole show on the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Well, I feel like we really pioneered the observation that he's a bit angry sometimes. So People will hear what we said and say, wow, they were prophets ahead of their time. I mean, we did record several years after the 
church collapsed because of those exact reasons, but... Oh, is that why it collapsed? I feel like we were the first ones to put it to podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We had to think about it a little bit before we do our hot take. That's right. You, we just got to mull it over for six years and then say what was obvious. <laughs> so now that I th- think we've covered all the things we need to cover before we get into this episode. Yep. <laughs> does the part we already recorded begin with me saying, hey, Tom, what's our question for today? Yeah, it does. It begins with that. Well, that feels a bit redundant now, but why don't we cut to me asking that? Okay, sounds good. Okay, so Tom, what's our question for this week? Our question for this week is actually sent to us by a listener, the very first listener question that we got, and it is from Connor, and he asks the question, would Jesus have fought in a world war? I think we should clarify that this is the first question that we got through official channels yeah, because when we threw it out there to like so our one about poop was a question that was asked by somebody yeah that's true but yes this is another this is another question that someone is asking which we need to answer so that it can become a question they're not asking and then yeah in retrospect it fits great with our podcast do you think this is a question that people are not asking so, so i just before we started talking just then i thought i should really google this to see if other people are asking it and it turns out it doesn't look like people are actually asking it like there's there's the questions about jesus and war and whether jesus was a pacifist or if he's into non-violence and stuff like that but no one seems to have asked from what i can see is did jesus would jesus fight in a war but just you know how do we feel about wars and Christianity, if that makes sense in that distinction there. I, and I think a world war is kind of different to just like a a run-of-the-mill war because there is a sense, you know, like with the, like take World War Two, there was this real sense of like the Nazis are this existential threat and they are an evil force. And so mm. it's not just I want this land, no, I want this land. There is something more... I guess, morally pressing to the, and like morally obvious to the conflict. Um, But also like, were you asking this question before it was sent in? No, I wasn't asking this question. So at least at some point it was a question you're not asking. Great. So good. We're good to go. I think we've decided we can answer it. So let's answer it. Okay. I think we also, as we discuss this, so I think we probably need to discuss some ground rules about things we want to discuss. Okay. Like one, before we answer the question of would Jesus do it, it, maybe we should talk about what it would be like if Jesus did do it. If he did. Yeah. And the other thing is that the world wars that we have experienced, uh, there are two, well, we haven't experienced any of them, but there are two different world wars so far. And they're both significantly different uh, wars. And so we need to, I think, consider them separately. And maybe we might want to consider a third world war just in case, uh, you know, that becomes an option in the future. Third time's the charm. (laughs) That's probably not a good use of that phrase. Okay, first question then, what would it be like if Jesus fought in a world war? Yeah, which is, I mean, to some degree, a little bit difficult to answer because we never got to see Jesus do any actual fighting, except maybe when he cleared the temple and made himself a whip. Yeah. That's the closest we get. And it's interesting that when he did that, it it seemed like it was all run-of-the-mill human power at work, in the sense of, like, he didn't do, like, a storm from the X-Men and whip up a tornado and blow everything clear or... He didn't strike him down with lightning or any of that stuff. Yeah. But if Jesus was fighting in a world war, you'd want to be on Team Jesus, surely. Because if he's un- if he's unleashing his full, you know, divine power, good luck, other side. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, yeah, one, morally, I guess you want to be on Jesus' side because he'll be on the correct one. But I think oh, that's true as well. Like if he's if he's not unleashing his divine power, like if you're picking a character to fight with in a video game, you've got mm. Jesus, he's got like loving and has a whip. So like that's pretty low on in your fight standards. Like I'd I'd pick Peter over Jesus probably because he wants the fight more. And yeah, he like he's got the he's got the heart for the fight. He's he's got a 
He's got a sword, a sword ready to go. But yeah, if if Jesus is using his his full divine power, you definitely want him on your side. If Jesus is using his full divine power, he can just like say the word and the whole other side is dead. Yeah, I, I guess you've got the problem with Jesus. In terms of like, if you're making a film about, about Jesus fighting in a war, you'd have the problem of he's too powerful. It, like, there's no one who can beat him. And he's like kind of like Superman, but even better than Superman because he can get it all done straight away. I feel like if Jesus was fighting in a world war, it'd be like Avengers Endgame, but if Iron Man just started with the gauntlet. <laughs> And if the gauntlet didn't kill him. And so if he could just click his fingers and disappear, I guess at that point Jesus is more Thanos than Iron Man, though. So we may have gotten to the bottom of a part of our question there. I I did. I was talking to a friend about this just before uh, who uh, is an ordained Anglican minister, so he definitely would have covered this uh, in his ordination classes. Um, And he was saying that he reckons that Jesus fighting in a war would kind of be like Captain America in that he would, because he's a good guy, he would fight, but he wouldn't, he probably wouldn't kill people. He'd just like injure people. And then maybe at the end, like you'd, you'd find all the bad guys tied up to be taken to the Hague and put on trial. Yeah. Okay. So he wouldn't do, so like I used to write this series of books called Zack Power, which was basically like James Bond for seven-year-olds. But because it was for seven-year-olds, you could never have any real... Like, you couldn't have a threat of death, and you couldn't have, like, any real... Like, no one could have a gun. Mm. So everyone had a a laser blaster, or an EMP, or a sleep ray, or a freeze ray, or a thing that covered you up in glue and made you fall down. And so it was always <laughs> these non-lethal threats. And so I was writing this, this like, mega series called the Zack Power Mega Missions. And it was this, like, ult- Zack's ultimate fight against the ultimate enemy. But they weren't allowed to really do much direct violence to each other. And so I just had to figure out how to make it as dramatic as possible. So I put him in the jungle on, like, a steep slope in the rain. And they were just, like, shoving each other around. And that w- and then I think one of them ran away for some reason. Um, and so that was it. And so... I don't know. It just reminded me kind of of that. Like if Jesus did go to war, but he wanted to somehow maintain his non-killing, then I don't know. What would he do? Shove him around in the mud and then run away. Yeah. And probably like use like spider webs to tie him up. He'll be like Spider-Man. And pew, pew. I reckon he'd do a bit of that stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he could literally do that. He could shoot webs if he wanted to. If he wants to. Okay, so I think there's there's basically, in my head now, we've, we've established sort of three levels of Jesus' possible participation in a war. He could either just completely eliminate the other side at will, or he could go the Captain America slash Spider-Man, kind of like... You know, in Captain America Civil War where they're fighting each other, but they're still kind of friends. And it's mm. like, well, I don't want to like actually kill you, but we'll, I do need to get to that plane. So there could be that version. Or there could be he casts his divine power aside and is just like a regular troop with a gun and a uniform and a helmet. I think, well, so I think what's interesting and probably which plays into this, and I think we might come back to it is the when you see Jesus as the heavenly warrior in Revelation 19. So this was the the bit of the Bible that was very popular 10 years ago-ish when Driscoll was big into manly Christianity, which I must admit I was a little bit into. But this this verse about Jesus... You are a very manly man, Tom. <laughs> And don't let ev- don't ever let anyone tell you different. Yeah, yeah, no, I am, and that's that's why I've now started. I write such manly things, encouraging teenage boys just to grow beards and eat meat and punch people in the throat. Well, otherwise, how will people know they love Jesus? <laughs> I do remember there was a lot of discussion of throat punching in Driscoll's sermons, which s- s- seems a bit odd. Is that the best 
place to punch someone? Like the most effective place to, I guess, I mean, I wouldn't want to be punched in the throat, but I wouldn't want to be punched in any places. Yeah, I think I think there's less protection in your throat, so it can it can stop you breathing pretty well. And maybe it's the manliest place to punch someone. Yeah, well, you definitely don't punch another man in the ghoulies. That's not it. It's not on. But in the throat, yeah. I don't know. May, do we have any like toxic masculinity expert friends that we could get on to talk about these issues? <laughs> what What is the most biblical place to punch someone? Well, who do you know? Who's what's the most toxic male you know? And then we could get him in to to tell us. Oh well, that. I'll, I'll just make a list now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the point is, this popular passage um, was. Oh yeah, what what does it say? Tom? It was often used to talk about how manly Jesus was. That he wasn't just you oh, know yeah. a, a meek, mild man who hung out with children and yeah, a nice sword coming out of his mouth. Yeah, a sword coming out of his mouth. So this is what it says. This is from Revelation 19.11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dripped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He'll rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it goes on. Um, and basically, uh, they have a bit of a fight and Jesus wins very easily so the first thing i'd want to say about that is it's obviously completely literal and so whatever our face value reading of the text is i think we can go ahead and just assume that is the meaning but my uh, a real question that i would like to raise now that i'm done being facetious is um whose blood is that on jesus robes that is that is a good question it could it could be his i assume it's his because before there's no fighting that's happened yet or the other, maybe, maybe I don't know. The other, the the other place where we see there's stuff going on in the story. There's like the martyrs, who they've shed blood, but it's probably not their blood because he would have had to be personally involved in their martyrdom for that to happen. Right, and so this is like because people use this passage to be like, yeah, see, look at Jesus. He's gonna come back and and he's gonna splatter people, and there's gonna be blood on his clothes. Um, and he sure does sound like he, you know. If that's your picture, he seems like he'd punch some throats. But, like, I'm very fascinated by the interpretation that says that's his blood. And so, actually, this is not the image that we think it is. And the the sword is about truth, right? Not about violence. And so, I don't know. When you start unpacking the symbols, suddenly, maybe this doesn't mean exactly what it looks like on face value after all. Yeah, well, I mean, if you go on in the passage, though, it, it, it says there's a bit of violence there. Like, so he says, um, I, I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who, were, who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown into, alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. So there is violence being done to the characters in this vision by the writer. I do like that you've um, taken us deep into the book of Revelation in an attempt to bring clarity to the question. <laughs> I think that the reason why I brought it up, though, is because if you want to know what Jesus is going to be like in a war... Mm. Here is a picture of him in a war, and he wins very, very easily. Like, there's no there's no actual fight. He just rocks up, and then the beast is captured, and the false prophet, and they're both thrown into the fiery lake, and then everyone else is killed with the sword. Like, there's no fight 
It's just winning. I would also like those birds on my team if I'm in a war rather than on the opposing team. Well, at very least, they can understand English or angel talk. Yeah. Well, maybe the angels can speak bird. Yeah, that's probably more likely. <laughs> I mean, maybe there's a winged creature's shared language that we don't know about. Although, do angels have wings? Not the question for today. Where, where were we? <laughs> Revelation. Okay, so if Jesus did fight in a war, it'd be all over. No contest. No contest. Done. Yeah. Although that is Jesus fighting directly as the active participant in the war, right? Mm-hmm. But I feel like we can't answer this question, like would Jesus fight in a war, without going back to the Old Testament and looking at the times where it do- it sure does seem like God commanded war. And, you know, there's all this language of God giving them the victory and God working through his people to win battles. Mm. So at least at some point in history, we can look back and say there was war that was sanctioned by God or like some sort of like battle and fighting anyway that was sanctioned by God and also where the victory was enabled by God. Mm-hmm. So what do we what do we make of that? Uh I I I had not thought ahead that we would be going to this. <laughs> so, <laughs> I've done a little bit of thinking about this, but I haven't got to a point where I've made it I'm like, this is what I think is going on in these passages. Like, I think to some degree, and this doesn't actually answer the question, but I think there's there's a there's a discussion about the destruction that is commanded and done in the Old Testament, about how wholesale the destruction actually is, that there's this kind of literature of war in the ancient times where people would overemphasize their wins and underemphasize their losses. So you read about Israel like killed like 45,000 people and 12 Israelite soldiers lost their lives. And every kind of every win is always described as like a total victory. But some of the numbers it seems like the numbers there are too great in the Old Testament for how many people died compared to how many people were around at the time. Mm. Or also the places where they were fighting and where God was commanding them to fight and where we read about him, like, you know, kill everyone and have wholesale destruction. And you find that actually the places they were fighting may have actually just been a, an army kind of barracks. Like military cities. A military yeah. city. So there probably wasn't women and children, many women and children there to f- kill, but you have this kind of way of speaking that it's entirely, you entirely devote everything to God by killing it all. But then you see, like, it's like, go and kill all the Edomites. I can't remember all the who does what where, but it's like, God's like, go kill all of them, and they all get killed. And then we find them, they turn up, like, a, later in the Bible. So, obviously, they weren't all killed, mm. but, but the de- description of the descri- destruction is that they are all entirely wiped out. So, there's some thoughts without getting to a conclusion. I notice you have a book there. Are you going to give us a quote? I do. Have you read... Um... The Skeletons in God's Closet by Joshua Ryan Butler. No, but I have had you recommend it to me, so I feel like Probably. That's... Maybe even on this very podcast, yeah. but um, <laughs> the subtitle is The Mercy of Hell, The Surprise of Judgment, and The Hope of Holy War. And it basically makes the case that when hell and judgment and holy war are rightly understood, all of them are not exceptions to God's love, how they are actually expressions of God's love, which is a, a a hard pill to swallow, but um, that's why the book is several hundred pages. The author basically goes through and says a lot of the stuff that you've just said about like kind of ancient trash talk and military cities and things like that, but also makes the point that these people groups that God judges via the instructions to his people to wipe them out or drive them out or whatever the case may be in a particular situation, they are awful people who are, who are doing awful things. The analogy is not Israel is America and the Canaanites or whoever are some subjugated people group that are getting carpet bombed. 
if we're going to talk about it in modern terms, the Canaanites are America. The Canaanites are the superpower. And Israel is the oppressed people group. Mm. And so that, I think, really makes a difference to the way that we interpret all that. Anyway, I guess I raise that all to say... Like, I know this is like a huge issue and, and, and bigger than we have room to talk about within the scope of, of this episode of the podcast. But I would say um, if you if this question is a question that you have and if one of the barriers that you have is like to putting your trust in Jesus or believing that God is good is this idea of holy war in the Old Testament, I would really encourage you to read The Skeletons in God's Closet because it does a better job than I can here of outlining it all. But all that to say, like I don't think we can use the Old Testament and say, there, see, God loves war. Because I don't think that's the point it's making by a long shot. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's that sounds, this guy seems, sounds like he knows what he's talking about. We should get him on the podcast. We should, if he wasn't a big deal author. But maybe, I mean, we, we've had another big deal author on the podcast. Yeah, and you're a big deal author, and you're on the podcast, so. Oh, uh, yeah, but I, that, mm. We did, we did, we did our regular Kurong search, and I've almost cracked the top two hundred on Kurong um, temporarily. Should we um, move on past? We should move on. Okay, so we've we've kind of said here are the spectrum of possibilities. If uh, if Jesus did fight in a war, what it might look like, and can we now move on to would he actually do it? And I guess we've kind of started talking about that, but do you have thoughts? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think there's there's a difference um, between a war that is God's war. So however we interpret the uh, holy wars in the Old Testament, that that's a different war from whatever World War One or World War Two is and whatever World War Three might be. And the war mm-hmm. at the end of time is the same. It's also a divine war. Um, or it's it's a war it's a war of the enemies of God against him, but it's not a it's not a war of two human warring powers, um, both of which may claim to have God on their side. That's a that's a different thing. So, mm. so we need to discuss like what yeah what it would it be like if for Jesus would he fight in any of these particular world wars. Mm. Well, okay, can I then just read you the quote that I was searching for, which is actually a quote from Miroslav Volf, which is on the topic of nonviolence and divine vengeance. Mm-hmm. And he says, uh, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude towards violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. Which I think the the reason I read that is just to say that like maybe to kind of put a bit of a pin in the God's judgment conversation that we've been having. And to say that like Wolf's point is like like we in the West who live these comfortable lives find it quite easy to say like, yeah, you should just be nonviolent. And if you are living on the underside of violence your whole life, it's way less easy to be like, yeah, we should be nonviolent. And he says the only way that it makes sense to, to continue believing in nonviolence is not because you don't believe that God could ever judge the world, but because you know he will. Mm. And so the knowledge that in some sense... God will wage war against all evil everywhere, or that God will at some point say to all the forces of evil this far and no further and will put a stop to all of it. Like, that's a thing that we all want. We all do want God to put a stop to the evil in the world. And so I guess that kind of maybe is a way of segueing into what might that look like in a world war in a kind of hypothetical situation where Jesus is on the ground and able to be 
asked, hey, you want to join up? Yeah. Well, let's take World War One. Would Jesus fight in World War One, Tom? Let's say that rather than being born at the turn of the first century AD, he was born at the end of the 19th century and was coming of age at the beginning of World War One or in the middle of World War One, and he was asked to sign up. Yeah. So, so I think there's a few interesting things here. One is like the question is where the the Jesus that is fighting in the war is the popular Jesus or the Jesus who is going on to either already has launched the Christian movement or is going to go on to launch the Christian movement. So like, like say like if it's Jesus who we know and love now, and he just happened to be hanging around in uh, 1914 when world war one breaks out Mm -hmm. and then he goes and signs up like what that, does politically that Jesus has uh, lent his approval as Jesus, the founder of the Christian faith, to the war? Like that's a that's a big deal. Like as opposed to would someone who has the same ethics as Jesus join the world war? That's a different thing. So if it's like, does Jesus, the Son of God, join the war, um, and with all the political implications that come with that? And what does that mean in the other wars? Then I think, to some degree, no, he doesn't join. Partly because of what that's like, what that says. As opposed, like if I go and join a war, it's very different from uh, if Scott Morrison, our prime minister, goes and joins a war. Right. So you're you're imagining a situation where Jesus actually is like, I know I said when I came back, it'd be the renewal of all things. But this war is on, and I'm just going to pop down and say, I am on this side. Well, yeah, I guess, I guess maybe there's that option, or that, like, um, you know, we're in an alternate history where Jesus is like, I'm going to come back at some point, it'll be the renewal of all things, but I also might come down a few times. To join just a to war say, once in a while. Good day. To- and when... He comes down in 1914 and they're like, hey, Jesus, this war, do you want to join? And he's like, oh, yeah, I think I might. And then people are like, oh, it's the Jesus war. This is righteous. Well, because history is full of people who did think Jesus was on their side in their war. Mm-hmm. Um, and often these wars had people on both sides who were followers of Jesus. Yes. Or who claimed to be followers of Jesus which is an interesting scenario if you're a Christian and your ultimate allegiance is to Christ and yet you're also fighting against other Christians to some other end. I don't know. Like, that is... I don't know. Like, I want to tread really carefully because I have grown up in peacetime and so I feel like it's very easy to be like, oh, war's bad. You shouldn't join war. Mm -hmm. Killing's bad. But... I mean, I think when, maybe when we get to World War Two, it'll it'll become a little bit thornier. So you're saying if Jesus popped in just to like check things out, and there was a war on, that he wouldn't join World War One? Is your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, he definitely wouldn't join World War One. And I, I think, and I, I think partly from what I know about World War One, I'm not an expert, but from what I know of it, what was going on politically, it seemed like it was a like it was a mess of like different people with different grudges, you know, like kind of local grudges that were getting worked out and responses to treaties and trade deals and old school kind of ethnic things going on and some colonialism going on. And it all kind of just got thrown into this melting pot where things just exploded. But there was no actual big thing that anyone was fighting. As opposed to like World War Two, where you go, go like, oh, you clearly got the Nazi antagonists and the the allies who were fighting against them. But in World War One, it's like you've got a lot of people who all have kind of mixed motives going on mm. there. I mean, I'm not going to lie, Tom. It's been quite a while since high school modern history. So I'll, I'll back all the way out of giving you my two cents on who was right and who was wrong in World War One, or, you know, how complicated the sides were. But I think World War Two is like the war that everyone points to when they say, yeah, but what about in a situation where there is a good side and a bad side? Mm -hmm. And that is where it it becomes 
really difficult because Jesus is clearly not on the side of the Holocaust. I think, you know, whatever else we whatever else we decide and conclude today, I think we can say that Jesus is firmly anti-genocide. Yeah. Though I think what's what's interesting about that, not that it has any way that he's not anti-genocide, but that, that the people who were experiencing that particular genocide, and there's all sorts of people, all people groups all over the world who have experienced genocide in different ways. But for him, like these are these are his people, the Jewish people who are being mm. systematically killed by the Nazis. And so for him, if he was around in World War Two, it may not be like there's still a question of would he fight, but we can be sure that he would have been someone who was in danger. And that who is Jesus going to identify with in that point? He's going to identify on the side of the oppressed and those who mm. are being hunted and killed, as opposed to identify on the side of the the supermen and superwomen Aryan master race. Like that's not his people. And I and yeah. I think where, wherever we find uh, oppressed people throughout the world we're much more likely to see Jesus identifying with them because he is the one who he grew up in a nation of people who were oppressed, uh, living in an occupied nation, and he was killed by the powers who are his own people and the occupying force. Like, either way, he is, he is on the side of the oppressed. But what we see when he responds to the oppressor is he doesn't respond in his own context with violence, but he responds uh, with being willing to act, to give his life for the salvation of the oppressed and the oppressor. Mm. And so I think well, maybe the two most obvious places to me to go for an answer to this question then are World War II, because in a sense, if there was ever a time where Jesus might be tempted to pop in and join the fight, it would surely be when his own people are being systematically exterminated Mm -hmm. and yet he didn't and so that's not to say therefore everyone should have just like turned a blind eye to that and we actually shouldn't have gone to war against the nazis i mean and and this is surely a question that has plagued countless people it's like well why didn't god step in Mm -hmm. like that is that is a very large and complicated and in some senses unanswerable question i suppose but then yeah as you say you look at the situation that Jesus was born into and that he grew up into. And it was a situation where he was on the underside of the oppressor, where he could have used his Jesus powers to overthrow the Romans. And he didn't like, there were people who wanted him to go to war and he didn't. He was even hesitant to say that he was the Messiah because people, when they heard the word Messiah, would go, oh, cool, so you do want to start up an army and boot out the Romans. Mm-hmm. And he never did it. And like, as you said, he instead went to the cross and allowed himself to be killed by those enemies. And even, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, it, like which is possibly like the clearest, most expansive kind of summary of Jesus' teaching, he said... You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. And then, you know, there's all the stuff about, um, oh, just above that. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And so central to Jesus' teaching seems to be this idea of like self-giving, sacrificial enemy love, even to the point of death, you know. He gets arrested and Peter tries to go to war. He tries to like take up a sword and, and attack Jesus' enemies. And Jesus heals the enemy that gets injured and says, no, nah, this is not how we do it in my kingdom. And so I think on one level, the answer 
for Jesus seems really obvious. And how we enact that as his followers is a, a different thing and a really difficult thing. And people have had lots of different answers to that. I wonder whether the more pressing question for us as followers of Jesus is, should we go to war? Mm. Like if if World War Three happens, and I pray it doesn't, but if World War Three happens and it does emerge as a legitimately kind of good versus evil scenario, what is the Christian response? Is the Christian response to take up arms against that evil? Or is it to opt out of the situation? Or is there a third way that is distinctively Christian and is the thing that Jesus actually would call us to in that situation? Yeah. And I and I think so I think we can we can rule out Jesus as as a fighter in any world war partly or significantly because of who he is and the role that he plays in salvation history means that he wouldn't he wouldn't be a fighter but there is a role within the bible for to for force to be used by the correct authorities and i don't think that christians are not allowed to be part of those authorities so like in romans 13 we say that the authorities are established by god they hold no terror for those who do right but for those who do wrong and so if we have a role to play it might be to enact god's justice as part of the governing authorities Mm. yeah I, i mean i think like ultimately jesus answer to the injustice in the world is not victory by killing but victory by dying I think like ultimately, cosmically, what Jesus has done on the cross is his answer to the violence and suffering in the world. And I think, you know, we were in Revelation a while back in this conversation. And I think fundamentally the picture that Revelation paints is that there will come a day when Jesus will wipe out all suffering and where he will judge all of the evil in the world and get it out of here. And I think that's a thing that we can look forward to. And I think that does... Like, as, as Miroslav Volf said, like, that is the engine behind Christian nonviolence today, you know, is that fundamentally, I don't need to make all things right because Jesus will make all things right. It's not all up to me. Now, Jesus calls on us to be peacemakers. He calls on us to do justice and to love mercy. He calls on us to right the wrongs that we see in the world. But... You know that Jesus was called the Prince of Peace, and I think He calls us to be people of peace. And I think in a broken world, figuring out what that looks like is very, very complicated. And I think it's above our pay grades to say Christians should not fight in wars mm. or Christians should fight in wars. But I think the thing that I want to hold on to, regardless of where you land on that question, is. Ultimately, you know, as the Bible says, that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Like, our real enemy is not other people. Our real enemy is the evil forces in this world that are opposed to God. And, like, the the evil within us that is opposed to God. Mm. And I think that, like, war is complicated, but what's simple is that Jesus calls us to love our enemies. And when I say that's simple, I mean that is simple to... Uh, wrap our minds around and a, a whole lot more difficult to do but that is that is the calling yeah it's the, the complexity of this world up against the the purity of of the work of jesus and the gospel i, I like i think i i don't feel like i've got this space to know how to love my enemies in a context where i would also be fighting my enemies so i'm like i would I, i'm going to be a pacifist all day long <laughs> Yeah, but, but maybe because, um, because I haven't figured out a way that you can, you can be on the side of justice, and fighting for the oppressed, and not be- also become an agent of oppression and violence yourself if you yeah. take up the sword. But but I don't but I don't think that I have have the ability to make that call for everyone. That's just the call I'm able to make for myself. And I think we see a lot on like both sides of the kind of political aisle or the socio-political aisle or whatever. People doing 
really awful things and saying really awful things and acting in really awful ways towards other people in the name of peace. Mm-hmm. Because if you just do it our way, there'll be peace. Yeah. And so I think there is a real danger that we become convinced that we're on the side that's right. And therefore that justifies whatever. On the flip side, I was reading, I forget, it might've been Mere Christianity. It's one of C.S. Lewis's books. Um, and he's talking about pacifism and why he's not a pacifist. And it might even be this short essay, why I'm not a pacifist, because I'm pretty sure he wrote one called that. Um, but anyway, he kind of, he paints this scenario because, you know, he actually experienced war. He was a soldier in war. And he paints this picture of like two soldiers from two opposing sides who like shoot guns at each other and they both die and then they meet up in heaven and they're like, ah, oh, you got me. And <laughs> it's like this, like there's this kind of, and you know, there's a whole discussion to be had about like what war was like back then versus what it's like now and the like the gentleman's code and whatever that is like a part of a bygone era, I guess. But like there is a version of war where everyone kind of knows that we're on this side and you're on that side. But in the end, we, if there's Christians on both sides, they'll get there and be like, Hey, because it wasn't really personal. It was just about the cause or the side or whatever. But then also like, there's this like that thing about like in the trenches at Christmas, the like in world war one, I think world war one, both sides singing silent night together yeah and i was like what are you guys doing (laughs) what are you doing why are you killing each other then and so like it is like it is i think (sighs) yeah like jesus wouldn't fight in a war and i am so tempted to just kind of blanketly say therefore we shouldn't either and i think that's i guess where i come down like no i'm not gonna fight in a war I can't love my enemy while I'm holding a gun at them. But I also think that I do not know nearly enough. Like I, I am, I speak from such a position of privilege and peace. And like, it is really hard to say that definitively in the knowledge that there are so many people who are like, yeah, but you don't know what it's like. Yeah. And I know, I realize it would get a whole lot more complicated if I was actually faced with a war and God willing, that will never happen. But if it does, I suspect it gets a lot more complicated when you're actually faced with it. Yeah, especially if if it's not just that you're caught up in some like geopolitical cause, but also within that is the the life of your family and your friends and your neighbors are all at risk. And how do you respond? Like, mm. like that's a whole nother thing. But I, I feel like we could talk about this for a very long time and people much smarter than us have had this discussion. In terms of Jesus fighting in a war, we can say we're pretty happy that he wouldn't fight in a war. With us, we might also follow in his footsteps, but we are speaking from a place of, of living in peace for our whole lives. Yeah, and I wonder whether maybe, and maybe this is a good way to land the plane, like for us living in the West, enjoying all of this peace and prosperity and privilege, whether the thing that Jesus is calling us to now is not to have kind of highfalutin philosophical discourses on whether or not we should theoretically go to war, but to ask ourselves the question, how can we live as peacemakers, which Jesus definitively calls us to and obviously calls us to in the here and now. And like the the kind of prime heroic example that I think of is you know Jeremy Courtney, Preemptive Love Coalition? No. Who, like, packed his whole family up and moved to Fallujah to... Like, basically, they take the love of Jesus into war zones. And by the love of Jesus, I don't just mean tracts. I mean, like, food, medical care. Like, basically, whenever there's... Like, like in the middle of all the war in the Middle East, those guys are getting in there and, you know, risking getting bombed to bring aid and to bring shelter to people in need. And I think that is the shining example of what Christians do in the face of war. I think what Jesus calls us to is to bring peace. I was listening to one of John Mark Comer's sermons from Bridgetown Church, and he was basically making this distinction between 
peacemaking and peacekeeping and the idea that where the status quo is toxic we're not called to just keep the peace we're called to make peace we're called to make things right not through violence but through redemptive self-sacrificial love and what that actually looks like day to day for each particular person in each particular situation is i guess for god to show us when we get there but i think the attitude that jesus calls us to and that he demonstrates the like supremely on the cross is that the way to bring peace is not by taking a life but by laying your life down Mm. that's good he's a good one john mark comer Sure is. and I think yeah. he's a total pacifist, though, just for the record. So I think <laughs> maybe I'm on pacifist. his team with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like, I like it. I'm, I'm, happy to, I'm happy to wrap it up there. That's good. Cool. Hey, Chris, if people want to find more stuff from you, where can they go? Well, as we talked about back at the top of the show, I am making daily YouTube videos. So if you search for Chris Morphew on YouTube, you can find them. By the way, you know I'm a professional podcaster because I called it the top of the show instead of yeah. the start. I don't know if you noticed that. Are we um, at the also, bottom of the show now? We are, I, we're at the rear of the show. At the nether regions of the show? We are at the the bottom of the show, Okay, I think, is the the end, the top you can't, you gotta, it's gotta be top and bottom. You can't say start. We are beneath the show. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. Anyway, so um, you can find you on YouTube. Oh, yeah. Also, chrismorphew.com, where you can find out about my books and things and all the social medias, except I rarely use them. How about you, Tom? Where can they find out more about you? I am not doing daily YouTube videos, but you can find me on YouTube at uh, youtube.com slash TWFrench, which is very exciting. And you can find me on facebook.com slash TWFrench or Instagram at TWFrench, and that's the end of the TWFrenches. Or you can go to tomfrench.com.au where you can find my books, and that's probably the main stuff you can get there. I used to blog, but then the pandemic happened. Maybe I'll do it again. Oh, and I think I'm going to start my preaching podcast. I think it's probably started by the time this goes up. Great. So, yeah, there'll be a Jonah preach that should be up there right now. Love that. Oh, yeah. So if you want that, search for Tom French preaching because that's what it is. I will. All Thank right. Thank you. Well, that's the show. It's been sure fun. is. See you later. See you next time. Bye. Bye.